We're into our third week of a summer message series entitled Joyful Noise, How Songs Inspire Deeper Faith. And I tell you, there was no better example of what we're talking about than all the singing that went on this week during vacation Bible school. Uh, We had 300 plus kids just singing their lungs out all week long. I mean, literally, the hallways were vibrating with their voices. And the songs were so good, you could always see the parents and the other volunteers kind of singing along with the kids. And it's the kind of music that just gets into your head, and they are going to be singing those songs for like the next couple of weeks. You just cannot get them out of your heads. God uses music and song to draw us closer to him, and he even uses music to plant seeds of faith into those young hearts who internalize it through singing it. Well, this morning we're going to use the song that was just sung for us, How Deep the Father's Love is the basis for this message. And so later you may want to refer to the words that are printed on the back of your bulletin. It's a song that echoes truth from God's word. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 16. It's part of his prayer for the young Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. And he prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power Uh, strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord God, that is quite a prayer. And if we can just scratch the surface of what Paul was talking about today, we will have accomplished uh, a great deal. So speak to our hearts now and use uh, what I've prepared, Lord, to draw us closer to yourself. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I have this uh, little tripod that I use for my camera sometimes. You know, it attaches to the bottom of the camera and you're supposed to stabilize you know your photos when you're taking I've taken it with me whenever I've gone on mission trips to India Africa other places it it really hasn't helped improve my skill level as a photographer but I I just kind of like it it's kind of a cool little gadget and I wanted to use it this morning just as a simple visual aid because of its three legs I want you to think in threes this morning there are going to be a series of threes that I want you to remember. And there are a lot of things in the Christian faith that revolve around numbers. You know, the six days of creation, the 40 years Israel wandered in the desert, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But threes are important too. There's that whole Trinity thing. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a pretty important three. And there's those famous triune list of Christian virtues in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. I knew you would know that. Or perhaps the most important three in the Bible, the third day when Jesus rose from the dead. Well, last week I spoke about three different kinds of song, music that are mentioned by Paul in Ephesians. He talks about psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. And Last week I said that in ancient Greek, the language of the New Testament, these words can really be used interchangeably. There's not a great deal of linguistic difference between them that we can be sure of. So, The rest of this morning, I'm just making it up, okay? This is just me. It's not inspired by God. It's just my simple way of remembering the different ways God can use song to deepen our faith. So first, there are psalms. 
I like to think of Psalms as kind of the broad category of singing Scripture. Because believers have sung the Psalms ever since they were first composed. Different tunes, different languages, of course, over the centuries. But the words have such amazing staying power. And many of the psalms are woven into our hymns and our praise choruses. You may be singing the psalms without even knowing it. Did you notice the first hymn we sang today based on Psalm 150? But other parts of Scripture are also frequently put into song. This week the children were singing very loudly John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Singing scripture is a great way to get it into your heart. There's a practical wisdom in putting scripture to song. Get God's word into your mind and to your subconscious. And one way to enrich your private devotional life is to take some of your favorite songs and track down the scriptures that they're based on. In some of the hymnals, the scriptures are actually listed for you, and you may be surprised to learn how many of your favorite songs are actually singing scripture. Singing scripture is a great way to put God's word into your heart. Second, there's hymns. That to me just sounds like a heavier word, kind of a denser, thicker word. And I equate the word hymns with singing about God. I don't think of hymns in terms of singing, you know, the type of singing, whether it's traditional music with an organ. I associate it with the content, uh, singing theology, singing about God. Uh, the character, the nature, the acts of God. Something like these words. Lord of all creation, of water, earth, and sky, heaven is your tabernacle. Glory to the God on high. When we sing about God, the hymn actually teaches us about the qualities or the characteristics or the actions of God. It, It gives you something to really chew on so that you can understand what it is that you're singing. So a a hymn is not just inspirational, it's also educational. It teaches us about God. And finally, songs of the Spirit. I see that as singing to God. There are songs that are just more personal, that, that take you into a more intimate relationship with God. That's the divine romance that I spoke about last week. Pouring out your heart, your emotions, your struggles to God and and seeking his presence and his power back in your life. This week I saw the old cowboy movie Shane. And in one of the scenes they gather for a funeral and they sing this hymn, Abide With Me. It was written by a man named Henry Francis in the year 1847. Written while he was dying from tuberculosis and in fact he died three weeks after he completed the words to this hymn. So listen to these words. And think of this man who was lying at death's door, knowing that the end of his life was very near. Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth joys grow dim, it Its glories pass away, change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and stay can be? Through clouds and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight 
and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? A triumph still, if thou abide with me. That's singing to God. That's a song of the Spirit, a song of deep communion with God. The point I didn't get to make last week is that we really need all three of these kinds of song for a balanced faith. We need Scripture. That has to be the basis for everything we do. Uh, It's not just my thoughts or my feelings. God has revealed his nature to us in his word, and it's not up to us to make it up as we go along. There is truth already revealed in God's word, and good theology is always based on the word of God. So we need scriptural song, but we also need theological song that'll sort of stretch our minds, that'll get us thinking, that'll stretch our imaginations to proclaim the truth of what we've learned about God. And singing to God, our heart responds to the scripture and to the truth, our relationship with this God who made us. And so that's an important three, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing scripture, singing about God, and singing to God. What I've been trying to do in these first three messages is to kind of develop a theology of music for us. And there are three threads to this theology, sort of a a what, a who, and a why, another three. This last, uh, first week I talked about the what, what music does to the brain, and I gave a little history of music's role in the Bible and the very first song, uh, Christian song recorded for us in the New Testament. That was the what. Last week I talked about the who, You and God, the main characters in this divine romance and how song draws us into a closer relationship with Christ, a a personal relationship based on security and love. Well, today is the why. Why music is essential to the Christian life. And the reason is, it's because music at its core teaches us about worship. Worship. You see, worship is the response of the heart to the activity of God. Worship is a reaction to God's actions. Worship is a response. We respond to the depth of the love that we have experienced in Christ. That's the way the Bible always describes or defines worship. Take Psalm 96, for example. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise his name. Declare his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all People, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him. All the earth say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The psalmist is responding to the work of God. And that response just kind of bubbles up. It sort of effervesces out of his life through song. And that's what worship is supposed to be, a responding to God with our minds and our emotions. Mind and emotion combined. Intellect and heart fused together. Do you see what I'm getting at? That's what worship meant to John Calvin, who's kind of considered the father of the Presbyterian and Reformed stream of Christianity. Calvin was a lawyer in Geneva, Switzerland, who became a leader of the Protestant Reformation back in the 16th century. He had this brilliant intellect, and he wrote these massive volumes of theology that still, that still torture divinity students to this day. Every picture you'll see of him, he looks awfully grim. 
and cheerless, but that's just the way they did portraits back then. It doesn't really reflect his true personality. Calvin's symbol, his, his logo, if you will, his coat of arms, was the image of a hand offering a heart to God, a heart that was on fire, a heart aflame with love, surrounded by these words in Latin, my heart I offer to you promptly and sincerely. You see, that's what worship is all about. That's why we sing. It's this joyous response to what God has done in Jesus Christ. But now that portion of Paul's prayer that I read earlier, it was a prayer for people who were having a hard time entering into that kind of worship. Something was holding them back. You see, worship isn't automatic. It ought to be, but it's not. In fact, it's a lot easier to fake worship than to really experience true worship. Page after page of the Bible details the insincere worship of Israel, the phony worship of the Pharisees, the droning ritual and the empty words, the soulless singing. Part of the reason God allowed judgment to come on ancient Israel is because they were just going through the motions in their worship. Listen to this indictment that Isaiah the prophet gave, speaking for the Lord in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. God says, Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of carrying them. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. I mean, wow. That is quite an indictment of their kind of worship. He doesn't even hear their prayers. Do you hear the sting there of their phony worship? Now, according to Paul, Paul's prayer, he seems to think that the reason people have a hard time really worshiping is that they don't grasp the depth of God's love. To grasp means to have a real experience of, not just a head knowledge, but a deep heart knowledge. Because too often, people, even within the church, they settle. They settle for the superficial experience of God. They, they don't press deep enough. They're still kind of working off a child-size image of God, sort of a vacation Bible school level God, which is great when you're in elementary school. But they never kind of go on to maturity, to, to a, an adult-size God who can handle adult-sized problems, and so they don't really take God seriously. And therefore, they have to kind of be in control themselves in their sense of worship. Well, it's sort of like a water faucet that's been turned down so tight that God's Spirit just flows barely a trickle. Paul's point is that when we really comprehend the vast dimensions of God's love, we can trust Him. We can trust Him to guide us through the, the worst mazes that life has. We kind of open up. And when we open up, we really believe that God has our, our best intentions at heart, our best interests. It means that we can live surrounded, engulfed by this awareness of the love of God. And that is a tremendously freeing experience in life. When you really live each day just enveloped by an awareness of the love of God. And he gives us these four dimensions. He says, how wide? Well, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. 
East and west, they never meet. That's how long is God's love for us. Broad. How broad enough to include all people. Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or free, female. God's love is beyond all of our racial and ethnic and social divisions and how deep. I love the way Corey Tenboom puts it, describing her experience as a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps during World War II in her book, The Hiding Place. She defines it this way. She says, there is no pit so deep that my Jesus isn't deeper still. That's the depth of Christ's love. No matter how far down we think we can go, Christ is deeper than that. And how high? Raised with Christ, exalted to heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that brings us to today's song, How Deep the Father's Love. It's a song that in a poetic way explores the depths of what God's love does for you and for me in Christ. Simple, but simply profound. Let me just read the words for you again. You can follow along on the bulletin if you want. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. What should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. The depth of God's love. You see, friends, God's love, it is like a great ocean. And there is no way for us, any of us, to fully comprehend it all. There's no way that we can fully understand God's love. It is too vast. It is too powerful. It's like going down the shore and standing on the beach and watching the ocean's waves pound the shore. You're just in awe of their power. And you can't imagine the, the immensity, the enormity, the vastness of that great ocean. And that's the way it has to be for us as we try to comprehend this magnificent thing called the love of God. The vast assurance that God actually loves us, that he has accepted us, that we are dear to him, that we are precious to him. When we know this, that's when we know who we really are, that we belong to him, that we have this kind of overwhelming sense of well-being, of safety, that we rest in him, that we cease trying to, to do life alone. We find deep security in this vast love of Christ, and love always gives that. And it saddens me that there are people who can't seem to enter in to that kind of depth of God's love, who fake it. If you've ever been to the shore, to the beach, you've seen this. 
seeing a child kind of standing by the waves, maybe four years old or so. And as the waves come up, as soon as the wave starts to get close to her feet or his feet, what do they do? They turn around and run away. And it becomes a game. The waves come in, the child moves back, the wave goes out, they go forward. And it's, it's kind of this fun, cute game to watch. Sometimes the parents will come by and lift the child up and kind of gently dip her feet into the water. Or if you had a dad like mine, just throw you in, you know, traumatize you for life, something like that. No. But you know, God doesn't do that. You know, when God's wave of love comes in, there's nobody to force us into the water. That's a choice that we have to make freely. You can't just be lifted up and dropped in. It has to be your own choice. And that running away from the waves, it's fun when you're three or four, but how sad if you're 50 and you're still running away. There are people in churches like that. They like being around the ocean. They like the smell of the sea. They love to hear the waves. They appreciate its beauty. They can even sing songs about the ocean. But they never get in. They never get in. Folks, you got to get wet to really appreciate the depth of God's love. You got to put your head under. You got to get into the water. To really know the love of God, you've got to step in to that great ocean and let it engulf you. And so I know we've got tired people here this morning who are home from mission trips and who are probably fading out at this point. So let me just leave you with another three, three questions. First, do you know this love of God? Many people seem to resist it. They push away what will actually save them. God's love is reaching for you. Paul prays that we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Do you understand? We can know something in a way that is actually unknowable. Do you know God's love or do you only know that God loves you? And there's a world of difference between those two statements. I know that water is a combination of two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen, but that doesn't do much for me on a sizzling hot day when my throat is parched and I can barely swallow. I could care less that H2O is the chemical formula for water. My understanding of water doesn't quench my thirst. My need is not for deeper insight about the meaning of water. I don't need more knowledge about water. I need a drink, a long, tall glass of ice-cold water. If you only know that God loves you, but you don't know his love, it's like someone who studies water but never takes a drink. Understanding God's love doesn't mean to gain a mental concept of. It means to get it, to really get it. Do you really get the love of God? And secondly, what fear might be holding you back in experiencing the love of God? Often it's the fear of discovery. It's that inner voice that says, I'm a fraud And I don't want anyone to know it. I've been playing this game so long, I don't really know any other way to live. Or maybe it's a voice of shame that God can't possibly love me. Or it's the fear of losing control that, you know, maybe we felt let down in the past and I'm afraid God might let me down again. But God's love is so opposite from earthly love. Human love is so fragile, so conditional His love is absolutely solid and real. His ocean of love can flow into the places that we have shut off, that we have walled off, that we've bricked up. 
God's love is deeper than our deepest secrets. It can penetrate the darkness of our worst fears and wash us clean of our sin and our self-hatred. So third, what's the next step for you? What's a next step for you? Turning towards God, stepping into the water, maybe for the very first time, or maybe swimming out a little bit deeper into the love of God. You know, one thing that is great about the ocean that's different from salt water and lake water is there's that buoyancy in salt water where you can just kind of roll over on your back and it holds you up. It lifts you up and you feel kind of just supported and and buoyed by the ocean. That's the way God wants you to go through life, kind of leaning back into his great love, feeling buoyed up and supported and enveloped by him. Folks, remember this. Worship is the response of the heart to this breathtaking enormity of God's love. The deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like we just barely begin to understand the depth of your love. We've just tasted it just in such a small way. And if we could only kind of put our fears aside and just go in, go in a little deeper, put our head under the water, allow your waves of love to wash over us, to set us free, to turn away from self, Lord, and to turn towards you. Do that in our hearts now in whatever way we need to. Lord, help us to take that next deeper step in. For we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.